Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Gray very deliberately looking in to get the sign. Now the 2-1 pitch. Swing a high drive, right field, deep toward the corner. Way back it goes toward the foul pole and gone into the second deck above the Nationals' bullpen. A pair of walks, a three-run homer for Corey Dickerson makes it 4-0 St. Louis. And that is Dickerson's fourth homer of the year. And welcome to Nats Chat for Monday, August 1st, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, maybe moving forward, we can just do away with this month of July. Uh, July 2021 was a nightmare of a month for the Nats, as we have been chronicling with our lookbacks on the Nats Chat podcast. And July 2022 ends up being one of the worst months in franchise history for a variety of reasons, including the Nats in the month going 6-19, and 19, and the Nats concluded that month by losing two or three games to the St. Louis Cardinals at Nationals Park over the weekend. We did have that nice and fun and refreshing 7-6 win on Saturday night, but then came a 5 nothing shutout loss on Sunday afternoon, Nats falling to a major league worst 35-68 and 68 on the season. A lot is going to happen for the Nats over the 48 hours uh, coming up. We'll get to all of that shortly. But, Mark, I felt like what happened on Sunday afternoon was like such an appropriate punctuation mark to this month of July for the Nats. Yeah, this was exactly how so many games have gone for them. Their starting pitcher gives up some runs early, digs them into a hole, often via big home run, as was the case. The lineup does next to nothing, tries to get something going late, but it's way too little, way too late. And... It was a pretty lackluster game, Al. There was not a lot going on in this one. The good news, I think, as we mentioned the other night, by winning on Saturday, they clinched not ending up with the worst month in team history. That honor will forever go to the July 2008 group that went 5-19. and 19. This year's team went 6-19 and 19 in July to avoid that. But it was a miserable month in so many ways. And now the calendar shifts to August, and we don't know what this next month has in store. And chances are the next 48 hours are going to tell us a lot about how the remainder of the month and the remainder of the season is going to go. 
Yeah, I mean, we know that a lot of change is coming. The question is, is the biggest change of all coming? Is Juan Soto about to be traded? So the MLB trade deadline is Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. You know, just because the deadline is Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, of course, doesn't mean that trades have to happen on Tuesday. Uh, Trades could happen at any time here. We already have seen the floodgates open to an extent across Major League Baseball in recent days with a lot of trades being made, particularly among relievers. So you do wonder if over the course of Monday, maybe the Nats start shifting away the likes of, you know, Carl Edwards Jr., maybe Steve Ciszek, who's been pretty good lately. Uh, Maybe Kyle Finnegan ends up being dealt. But yeah, I mean, everyone right now is on Juan Soto watch. And it really is something because the Nats figure to trade away a lot of guys in the coming days. And, you know, like the trading away of Josh Bell is going to be a pretty significant thing. He's been a very good player for the Nats. And in theory, he could bring back some really nice pieces for the Nats. But it's like, Everything is just minimized because of Soto. It's all Soto all of the time. And even if Soto doesn't get traded, the headline come Tuesday night is going to be what happened with Soto. It's not going to be what happened with all the guys who end up being traded. Yeah. And I think this actually complicates things for Mike Rizzo. And I'm curious, after the fact, if he fills us in at all, on how these next couple of days are going to go. Because you can't spend all your time on Soto, obviously. He's got to be having tons of phone calls about everybody else. Well, Do you say, okay, we're going to try to get Soto taken care of first, either way, and then once we're done with that, we move on to the others? Or do you go the opposite direction and say, we're going to take care of Josh Bell, Carl Edwards, Kyle Finnegan, all the other potential moves, address all of those, and then save Soto for down to the wire on Tuesday? I don't know the right answer to that. I don't know if he knows for sure the answer to that. But think back to last year for at least a little bit of instruction on how this could go. It really was the last two days that everything went down and it started well the Brad Hand trade came down first earlier in the day but it was really Max Scherzer and Trey Turner was the first big thing to happen and then once that deal was done the floodgates opened and you had several more deals that night several more the next day when it was all said and done they traded away eight players so I am curious just from a logistics standpoint You can't wait until Tuesday if you're Mike Rizzo. There's too much to do. You kind of have to start making some decisions before then. Would you rather get Soto figured out first and then address the rest? Or would you just rather say, let's do everything else and let's hold teams hostage right down to the wire and see come five o'clock to six o'clock on Tuesday, will anyone meet the price or not? Yeah, I think it's tricky because especially with Soto, you want the best deal possible. And so... You can't just be like, well, we have to have this figured out so we can figure out Steve Ciszek. You know, it's like, no, we got to get Soto right. And so if you're going to trade Soto, you may have to not do the deal until 5.59 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday. Like, you know, that's part of what is so difficult with this is how do you know when to say yes? How do you know when to pull the trigger? How do you know that a better offer isn't coming? It's like selling a stock. How do you know when the right time is to sell a stock? The answer is you don't know. You have to do kind of your best guesswork on something like that. And I feel like that's kind of how it is with Soto. But you know, you think about the fire sale of last year, eight players traded for 12 prospects. We've talked about this a little bit. I don't think that the Nats are going to get to eight, but the number could end up being pretty high. If you think about, okay, Juan Soto, Josh Bell, Nelson Cruz, there are three right there. You think about the relievers, could be Kyle Finnegan, could be Carl Edwards Jr., could be Steve Ciszek. Now you're up to six. I don't know how much interest there is in someone like a Cesar Hernandez or a Yadiel Hernandez or even a Michael Franco, although he's being replaced by A. Ray Adrianz, it feels like right now, as an ad starting third baseman. But there could be some other position players not named Soto, Bell, and Cruz who end up being shipped. 
So this could end up being a pretty sizable sell-off here, not necessarily on the level of last year's, but pretty close. And who might go that we haven't really talked about at all? This there a surprise. You know, last year, the John Lester, we never saw that one coming. You just mentioned this. It's occurred to me the way that he's been used the last few days. Maybe A. Ray Adrianza, there's some kind of interest in him. They're playing him. And I can't help but wonder if that's an attempt to showcase him a little bit and see if there's a team out there that could use a veteran utility man. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that could happen. And so much of the attention has been given on Soto and to a lesser extent Bell that we have sort of forgotten about other potentials. But there's a lot to do. There's a lot for Mike Rizzo to do in the next 48 hours. And that's like I said, I feel like since as we're taping this approaching six o'clock on Sunday, nothing's happened yet. I feel like it's only a matter of time that I don't think this is going to go all the way to Tuesday without anything happening. You would think some of the dominoes have to start falling on Monday, if not even later here Sunday night. It's amazing how things work out. The Nats managing principal owner, Mark Lerner, was inducted into the Washington, D.C. Sports Hall of Fame on Sunday. I mean, of all the days for this to happen at Nationals Park, this happens on Sunday in what was potentially... Juan Soto's final home game. We, of course, have all of the Juan Soto trade talk. We, of course, have the Nats' ownership uncertainty. Mark Lerner did not speak with reporters. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah, Jesse Doherty of The Post uh, approached him right after the ceremony, asked if he had time for a few questions, and Mark uh, Lerner said, no, not right now, and that was the end of that. I'm not surprised, to be honest, but yeah, the timing of that ceremony was pretty notable and that that would happen to be on this day and that he happens to be one of the people inducted into the D.C. Sports Hall of Fame. There wasn't much of a crowd reaction when he was announced for that. Part of that, though, was because the ceremony was held an hour before game time and there were very few people in the stands at that point. There were way more people in the stands 15 minutes before game time when the Nationals presented Albert Pujols and Yadier Molina with some mementos on the occasion of their final trip to D.C., I don't know the logistics of this, why they schedule things when they do, but it was a little odd that that took center stage and that's something that in theory should be a big deal, DC Sports Hall of Fame. But they do this every year and it's kind of a similar deal, you know, is almost an afterthought and most people in the crowd don't even realize what's happening. There have been a lot of eerie coincidences with the Nats lately. You had the Nats playing a series at the Dodgers one week after the whole Juan Soto flight gate scenario to LA for All-Star Week. You had the Nats this weekend playing the Cardinals with the Cardinals as, in theory anyway, per reports, a primary frontrunner for Juan Soto. So you had that. And then you had Sunday being the one-year anniversary of the Nats trading Max Scherzer and Trey Turner to the Dodgers to get back that crop of four prospects headlined by Josiah Gray and K-Bert Ruiz. And we had Josiah Gray pitching on Sunday. Very strange how all of these things have uh, lined up here for the Nats in recent days. And you know who's pitching Monday at Nationals Park for the New York Mets? That would be Max Scherzer, of course. You couldn't go through this without Max being in attendance, and I'm sure he will have thoughts on whatever ends up happening one way or the other. Yeah, the Nats in this series against the Mets get Max on Monday night, get the returning Jacob deGrom on Tuesday night. Patrick Corbin is scheduled to pitch for the Nats on Monday night, but if somehow he ends up being traded, then who knows? Maybe he doesn't even pitch for the Nats on Monday night, so... There is a lot that could happen here over these next 48 hours. Hey, guys, it's Al Galdi for Window Nation. Great deal going on with Window Nation right now. The back-to-school sale, two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing 
until 2024. Visit windownation.com or call 866-90NATION and tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and that you want the back-to-school sale. You want the deal that you heard about on the Natch Chat podcast. Window Nation is the best. Lower your energy bills, raise the value of your home with Window Nation energy-efficient windows. You'll get an A-plus in savings. Window Nation has an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau. Window Nation installers have installed over a million windows in over 150,000 homes, with 96% of those homes needing no follow-up service. Window Nation does the job and does the job right the first time. WindowNation.com or 866-90Nation. Tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you and say, hey, I want the back-to-school sale Two free windows for every two windows that you buy, plus pay nothing until 2024. Yeah, you're not going to pay Window Nation a penny until the Nats are good again. 2024. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION. That's windownation.com or 866-90-NATION. And tell Window Nation that Al Galdi sent you. Today was, yeah, I think it was almost 50-50 on balls and strikes. So um, he's got to, he's got to, be aggressive in the strike zone, uh, get early contacts like we talk about. Um, but really, really, he's got to really focus on getting ahead of hitters. I mentioned Josiah Gray. The Nats starting pitching in this series against the Cardinals was not good. Uh, the Nats end up losing two of the three games. You had Anibal Sanchez struggling in game one. You had Paolo Espino struggling in game two, albeit in a short notice start. Remember, Eric Fetty was supposed to be the starting pitcher, but got placed on the 15-day injured list earlier in the day. And then we had Josiah Gray on Sunday afternoon, and Josiah Gray allowed four runs in five innings. Uh, He gave up five hits, a homer, two doubles, and two singles. He issued two walks, a hit-by-pitch, and a wild pitch. He did have six strikeouts, so he does continue to rack up the strikeouts, but he, over his five innings, threw 95 pitches and threw a lot of balls, 52 strikes versus 43 balls. He, in the top of the fourth, issued back-to-back, one-out, four-pitch walks of Nolan Gorman and Lars Nootbaar, and then gave up the homer, a two-out, three-run homer to Corey Dickerson to the second deck in right field for a 4 nothing Cardinals lead. So only one homer allowed by Gray on Sunday, but it was a big homer, and he now is allowed a major league worst 24 homers. He, over 19 starts this season, has an ERA of 459. The development has been very up and down, and there are good things, but there are not so good things. And start to start, you're just not sure what to expect, and I heard Davey Martinez with you guys during Davey's postgame press conference. The mechanical issues continue to plague Josiah Gray, and this just doesn't seem to be something that can be fixed right now. Yeah, this is something they've been saying all along. They probably have to wait till the offseason to address. There are little things you can do in season, but they feel like to be asking him to suddenly start throwing the ball and, and having a motion that is different than what he's always done and ask him to do that in big league games is probably not the right decision. So it does lead to things like this. He was, uh, Josiah, was frustrated after this one in a way that we haven't seen a whole lot from him. It was those back-to-back walks that you mentioned on eight total pitches, the home run, of course, the high pitch count, and really just not being able to go deeper in games. He understands that five innings is not enough. There were maybe some times that he'd be satisfied grinding his way through five. Not really anymore. He's starting to think a little higher of himself that he needs to give him six or seven innings. And the only way to do that, of course, is to keep the pitch count down, have not nearly as many uncompetitive pitches as he did in this game. And yeah, you look at the overall numbers and they don't wow you. Now, there is a lot of good hidden within that. 
and individual starts that have been outstanding. But he's got to find a way to learn how to still be effective when he doesn't have his best stuff, how to keep the pitch count down, give himself more innings. As he pointed out, if he gives up four runs, so be it. But if you're going to do that, give it up in seven innings instead of five. That's a big difference. It's still giving your team a chance, and the ERA won't look as bad as it does if you just give more innings. When you only go five, the margin for error is so slim. So he understands that's a big step he still needs to take. So right now, 19 starts into this season. Would you say that the Nats internally are more encouraged or discouraged with the development of Josiah Gray? I still get the sense they're encouraged because the good has been very good. And you can see what he's gotten. Even on a day like this, where the final line is not good and you didn't really give him a chance to win, the six strikeouts, the slider was outstanding. And he's doing that to some very good hitters. He struck out Goldschmidt, Arenado back-to-back. He struck out Goldschmidt twice. So you can tell that he's got it there. I think there's a little frustration in not being able to work with him the way they probably ideally would like to. But an understanding that he is still young and that he has been pitching for that long in his career and that he's getting a crash course at the big league level this year. But if you're ever going to do that, this is the year to do it when the team isn't going anywhere anyways. And just the hope would be that this is the first step and that he does learn from it and that with each successive year, he becomes a better pitcher. I go back, I think we mentioned it last year. Look at Jordan Zimmerman's first year in the big leagues. It was not great. There were moments you could tell that he had good stuff, but Overall, the numbers were not great. He ends up hurting his elbow. And, you know, it was a couple years. It really wasn't until 2012 that Jordan Zimmerman turned into the the workhorse uh, and the number two solid starter of this team that he would become. So there's still a lot of time for Josiah Gray to be that guy. Yeah, you wish the lows weren't as low, but I think the highs have been high enough that everybody here looks at it and says, he's got it. We just need to refine some things and just get the experience under his belt and, and things ultimately they feel like will be all right for him. You can always email the podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Email from Jackson France, big fan of the podcast. I know the big thing when talking about Josiah's development is the changeup, but I was wondering if you guys could talk about it. His current approach, where he throws primarily curves to lefties and sliders to righties. With all the numbers hitters have, I feel like this makes him a lot more predictable for hitters, especially when his command isn't as sharp. This contributes to having higher pitch counts and why he struggles to go deep into games because hitters know what's coming 0-2-1-2 and can sit on it. You know, I know Davey got asked about this during the postgame presser. Josiah this season has almost been like two different pitchers. He has struggled against lefty batters. He's actually been pretty good against righty batters, but there is that pretty drastic split for him this season, lefty versus righty. Yeah, and so the reason why he mostly throws the the slider to the righties and curveball to lefties, it's about the movement of the pitch, and it does make a difference for a hitter. The slider is moving away from a right-handed hitter. That's what ideally as a pitcher you want, pitches that move away from them. You don't want to throw that pitch a lot to lefties because now it's coming in on them. And if you hang one over the middle of the plate, not so good. So the curveball is going to break down more. It's still in, but breaking down more. So that's why he uses it more to lefties. He has been trying to mix them in a little bit more to both hitters. So it's not quite as predictable. But I think, and Davey has brought it up, that the changeup really is going to have to be a big part of this. If he doesn't consistently throw that, and he only threw two of them in this game, you have to keep hitters honest with something else off-speed, something that moves in a different direction, especially because we know his fastball itself is not really his go-to pitch. you got to have something to keep him off balance, so I think that's got to be a point of emphasis for him. His breaking balls are his best pitches. Some days he's got the slider, some days he's got the curveball, some days he has them both working well. That's when he's at his best. 
you've got to add that off-speed pitch change up on top of it all just to give hitters a different look. And I think that's ultimately more important than, you know, throwing more sliders to lefty or more curveballs to righties. Well, in fairness to Josiah Gray, his defense on Sunday afternoon wasn't exactly sparkling. The Nats, for the most part, played really good defense on Saturday night. Victor Robles had a great catch. Luis Garcia made a big play. Kiebert Ruiz threw out yet another runner on an attempted steal. But there were some defensive problems on Sunday afternoon. Principal among them, another negative defensive moment for Juan Soto. Yeah, if you're trading for Juan, know this. He's not having a great defensive season. Juan Soto in the Cardinals, one run third, very slow to a Corey Dickerson fly ball. Uh, that landed right in front of Soto on the dirt near the right field line for a leadoff double. Bad look. Not quite sure what happened. I mean, we know that Juan Soto hustles, so I don't know if he misjudged that or what exactly the deal was with that, but not a good look. Him not running seemingly at full speed and the ball again bouncing right in front of him. You know, we've talked about this. Juan Soto this season has not done well defensively. He entered Sunday with minus four defensive runs saved in right field off having shown real defensive improvement in recent years. What was your sense on what happened with Soto on that Dickerson double? Yeah, I think it probably starts with a misread and now he's late to get there. And at some point he just made up his mind, I'm not getting this ball. I'm just going to give up on it and not sell out completely for it. Now, the reasons for that, you know, is he protecting his body? Is he have other things in mind that you don't want to get hurt this time of year? Perhaps I I don't want to put ideas in his head that weren't necessarily there, but it was conspicuous. I don't know that he would have caught it if he tried to dive for it, but it was not a good look to just pull up and let the ball land the way that it did. Not the kind of thing we see from him a lot. Those numbers that you're talking about are not for lack of effort. They're just for lack of skill or not making good throws or not you know hauling in balls that are tough to, to catch. He has played very hard out there, and that hasn't been an issue on this particular play. I think He just gave up on it a little too soon, figuring he wasn't going to make the play, and it ends up being a bad look uh, like that. Another bad defensive moment for the Nats on Sunday afternoon came via Luis Garcia. Top of the ninth, another throwing error for Garcia, and another throwing error on what was pretty much a routine grounder, a leadoff grounder off the bat of the Cardinals catcher, Austin Romine. Luis Garcia did his thing where his footwork gets messed up. And I don't know if he overthinks things or what, but he ends up making a bad throw to Josh Bell. It feels like the simpler the play, the more likelihood that there is of Garcia committing a throwing error. You know, I mentioned Juan Soto coming into Sunday with minus four defensive runs saved this season in right field. How about this? Luis Garcia entered Sunday with minus 13 defensive runs saved at shortstop this season. That is a jaw-dropping number especially for a guy who hasn't been playing at the major league level all year. He got called up on June 1st. He, over two months, has amassed minus 13 defensive runs saved. That's hard to do, and yet he's done that, and it feels like pretty much every mistake he has is a throwing error. The throwing really does continue to plague him. On the routine plays, and it's funny, I asked Davey Martinez before the game about this, because he had that play we talked about the other night, Great play in the hole. He didn't get him out, but it was a great play to get to it and a strong throw to first base. And I asked Davey if Luis is actually better off on those kind of plays because he doesn't have time to think about it. And Davey said 100%. And so what they're actually trying to do with him is to tell him, treat the routine plays like that. Don't think about it. Just react 
act like it's going to be a close play and just make the throw right away. And you could see on that one in this game how he had it. He knew he had time. And now he double pumps. He's setting his feet. Thousand thoughts going through his mind of what he's supposed to be doing. And he ends up doing the wrong thing. And it's not pretty to watch. And then he had another play in the game, another one where he went into the hole and he made another nice play on it. And again, the less time he has to think about it, the better off he is. I don't know how you pound that into his head enough to the point that he doesn't do it anymore. You hope it's not such a mental block that this becomes even worse than that. But it is difficult to watch at times. You don't take your eyes off him when he fields a routine ground ball because you don't know for sure that he's getting the out. Yeah, it continues to be a problem. And, you know, I guess we have to remember we are only two months into his time at the major league level this season. It feels like he's been up for a lot longer. It's only been two months. But boy, things don't seem to be getting much better. I mean, it seems like he is good for some sort of throwing error once every few games. And we had another one on Sunday. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no. But angel hair pasta, Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. And the pitch. Swing and Bell lines it to left center field. It's hanging up for Carlson. And he makes the catch and the game is over. Bell didn't take a big swing. It's a bullet on a 102 mile an hour fastball. And that ends the ball game. Carlson with the catch. And Helsley slams the door striking out Hernandez and Soto before getting Bell to line out and the Nationals are blanked in the finale of this three-game series. The Nats offense on Sunday did basically nothing. No runs, just five hits, four of which were singles. Lane Thomas had a double. That was the Nats only extra base hit in the game. This was another one of these sleepy offensive performances. I mean, here's all that you need to know. The Nats number nine batter was their leading batter in the game. Tres Pereira was an Nats starting catcher and number nine batter, two for three with two singles, two leadoff first pitch singles, in fact, uh, those coming in the bottom of the sixth and the bottom of the ninth inning. So not much there. And now it's like, well, what's next? Uh, we'll see what the Nats lineup looks like here moving forward. A bright spot was the Nats bullpen on Sunday afternoon. And I think it is intriguing how many of these Nats relievers do, in fact, have legitimate trade value right now. We've talked about the bullpen being good lately. It was good once again on Sunday afternoon. Three Nats relievers combined to allow one run 
in four innings. Jordan Weems, one run in two innings. Steve Ciszek, who, like I said, has been pretty good lately, scoreless top of the eighth with two strikeouts. And then Corey Abbott, who we thought was going to be the Nats starting pitcher come Tuesday night against the Mets. He pitched in this game, although it sounds like this was utilized as more of like a bullpen session as opposed to like him being burned and now not pitching on Tuesday. But Abbott uh, on Sunday afternoon, scoreless top of the ninth with two strikeouts. What about Ciszek, though? Do you think that he will draw interest from teams? Well, I can tell you that when they signed him in spring training, that was totally the idea is here's a veteran who can help us out, but certainly somebody who would be appealing to contending teams come August 2nd. And he hasn't had a great season, although he has been better of late. He's not pitching a lot late in games in high leverage spots. They've used him a lot more in like the fifth and the sixth, even multiple innings often. So I am interested in what is the interest level in him. There's a lot of relievers out there on the market. And he doesn't fit the profile of the classic hard-throwing guy, certainly that most teams value in 2022. But if you have a team that would have a specific need for a guy who throws from that angle, can come in and get some right-handed hitters out, I could see it happening. Certainly, if there's an offer for him, I think you move him. There's no reason to hang on to him any longer. But my hunch here is that the trade interest in C-Sheck is not nearly what the Nationals hoped it would be when they signed him. Steve Ciszek is averaging more than a strikeout per inning this season, 10.35 strikeouts per nine innings. So with the relievers, Finnegan, Edwards, Ciszek, is there anyone else who you think might have legitimate possibility of being dealt? I mean, Victor Arano has his moments. You could say maybe that's somebody. I mean, Erasmo Ramirez isn't much to look at, but he gets the job done and he's versatile. He could do almost anything for you. So I don't totally rule out uh, that possibility. We, of course, thought that Tyler Clippard could maybe be a candidate, but he's hurt. He's not in the mix. Sean Doolittle also hurt and out for the year. I wouldn't think that anyone's going to make a play on Hunter Harvey, although he is pitching awfully well right now. I don't know what you give up because you know there's a good chance he's going to get hurt at some point, but he's under team control for several more years. So like Finnegan, it's that interesting dilemma for the Nationals. Would you trade a guy while he's hot, figuring he's probably not going to keep it up? Or would you say, hey, this could actually be a building block for us for several years? I don't know. But yeah, I think any of them could. Again, there's a lot of relievers that are out there. There are a lot of teams interested in them. Other than Finnegan, because of the control that he has and the fact that he is starting to establish himself as a late inning reliever, I would not count on getting a whole lot in return for any of the other ones. You're talking about rental relievers, middle relievers, setup men, not closers. Typically, you're looking at a single A type prospect. Even look at Daniel Hudson last year who they traded to the Padres. They got two prospects for him. They're both low-level guys. They might pan out. You never know. I guess Mason Thompson has some you know, potential for them. We haven't seen a lot of him because he's been hurt. The other one was a, a single-A uh, infielder. Generally speaking, you're not talking about getting slam-dunk everyday position players for a reliever in that boat. I think Finnegan could be a different story because of three years of control and the fact that he is you know, starting to gain experience as a late-inning guy. Yeah, I mean, with this sell-off, I think you're really just looking at adding quantity. I don't know how much quality you're going to get. Now, if you trade Soto, then you're going to get quality. But everyone else, even Josh Bell, I don't think anyone is going to bring back, say, like a top 100 prospect. Those things have become like these precious commodities. And so even someone as good as Bell, I mean, last year, Trey Turner and Max Scherzer only netted two top 100 prospects. Bell, he on his own is not going to bring back, I think, any like truly top guy. But can you get back some promising players? Perhaps. But Soto's the guy who's going to bring back the haul. Otherwise, you're just getting rid of whoever you can get rid of. You're trying to get back pieces, and you're just going to hope that 
one or more of these pieces ends up being something. But, you know, that is the thing about these sell-offs and, of course, these rebuilds. You can make all these trades. You can get back all these prospects. They are all like lottery tickets. And they, you know, some may work out, hopefully more than a few work out. But there's no guarantee that any of them work out. And that's part of the frustration with a rebuild is that you really don't know. And especially when it comes to Juan Soto, you have to go into it knowing this, that there are no guarantees. I don't care what prospect you're getting for him. There's nobody that you can say right now definitively is going to be as good as Juan Soto or even guaranteed to be a, you know an all-star everyday player for them. You have hopes and you hope that you get you know three or four of them for him and that gives you better odds of at least one of them panning out. But there is no guarantee of that and it's why it's a very difficult decision to make and to me, you don't make that move unless you are convinced, number one, There is no chance of keeping him in your uniform for a long time. And number two, you better be sure that what you're getting in return is as close to a sure thing as possible. And for all those reasons and everything else we've outlined, it still leaves me believing that it's going to be tough to pull off. Not saying it won't happen. If somebody meets the price, Mike Rizzo will make the move. But if nobody meets the price, he's not going to be forced into making this move. He'll hang on to him and wait till another day. I had this thought about the Soto situation. If the Nats farm system was in better shape, like let's say it wasn't elite, but it wasn't in the bottom third of baseball as it is. Do you think the Nats would be listening to trade offers as the team is right now? Like to what extent is the trade availability of Juan Soto a function of the state of the Nats farm system? And if in fact the trade availability of Soto is in no small part a function of the poor state of the Nats farm system. Isn't that a little messed up that your bad drafting and player development now has yielded your best player being on the trade block perhaps a year or two before he ever should be? Like, why should one bad situation lead to you making a mistake and creating another bad situation? I wonder about that. If the farm system was in better shape, would we even be entertaining the notion of the Nats trading Juan Soto right now? Yeah, it's a good point. And what I would also say is if the farm system was in better shape, you might be more inclined to think, hey, we might be able to contend again by 2024 and Juan Soto could be a part of that. And then that may help convince him to stay here in the long term. So I think that all goes hand in hand. It's the reason they did what they did last summer, because the system was in such bad shape that they did not feel like they could continue to be a contending team getting it from within. They've made some strides, but they're certainly not there yet. And yeah, it would be really unfortunate if the price for their struggles in drafting and developing is to now trade Juan Soto with two and a half years of control left. And it's another reason that whenever the time comes to finally decide yes or no, Mike Rizzo better consider all these things and understand the ramifications of it. And he does. I don't worry about that. But if it does happen, it really says a lot about what has happened to this franchise and none of it is good. No, it's not. And One bad thing doesn't have to lead to another. And to me, I'm almost like kind of angry about this. I'm like, you screwed up with drafting and developing, and now that's going to cost you and the rest of us Juan Soto? Like, why is that? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem like how things should be. And you also see, too, the multi-level price that you pay for bad drafting and developing. It's not just that you don't have good prospects. It's not just that your team is bad now at the major league level. It's that you feel compelled to do something that a lot of people would say you shouldn't do, which is trade away arguably the best hitter 
in the sport. Now, there are other layers to the Soto situation, as we've talked about. You know, should you pay anyone $400 million, et cetera? But, you know, I, I don't like the feel of this. I don't like that because you've screwed up in other areas now, you may be about to do something that you shouldn't do. I think that's a dangerous way to operate. We'll see. Maybe they don't trade him. But, boy, it feels to me, I'm with you. If the farm system was in better shape, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. And so I think you have to ask the question, well, then should we be having this conversation about Juan Soto? Yeah, look, if they do pull the trigger on this, they have to sell it to everyone as the right thing to do. And that's not an easy thing to do unless you are getting back something that is so good in return that you can convince everybody this was the move to make. If they can't do that, I don't think you can make the trade because obviously there's a baseball element to this, but there's a huge public relations element to this. And if they aren't thinking about that, then they are very foolish. This is not just a baseball decision, and it can't be framed as just a baseball decision. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. That's NatsChatPodcast.square.site. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify, please give the podcast a five-star rating if you haven't yet done that. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, consider writing a review of the podcast. It can just be like the brief review, like one or two sentences saying how much that you like the podcast. The ratings and the reviews help us out, and we very much appreciate you guys for doing them. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll see what happens, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.